and uh, I know our church will benefit from it. So let's dive into here. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. That would be a good one to memorize, and then you could skip down to verses 16 and 17 and memorize them if you want to follow the flow of the book logically. I wonder how many books you've read in your life. Uh, this is a good one to read, Romans. I don't know how many other books you've read. What's on your list of books that you want to read or that you've just dabbled in a little bit? Young Stuart was a voracious reader. Even as a child, he could read just about anything. Uh, as he grew up, he would end up reading a book a day. A book a day. Definitely an academic, gifted academic. But what about his heart? Some people are so filled with book knowledge, they have no life skill or spiritual heart to help anyone. And that can actually be a roadblock for spiritual growth. What about young Stuart? Well, his heart was beautiful because one day God transformed it. God transformed his heart as a child. I'll read it in his own words. He says, when the author was a child, he had a sense of a, a series of attacks of rheumatic fever, which led to heart failure and a staggering heart murmur. He was often out of school and on one occasion confirmed to his bed for over a year. During this time, he read every book he could get his hands on. His grandmother gave him a Bible. Since it was such a large book, he decided to read it just a few chapters a day. But he was so caught up in the exciting narrative of the historical books. In the Psalms and prophets, he saw very clearly the portrait of the coming Redeemer who had saved his people from their sins. When he got to Matthew, he saw that Matthew identified that Redeemer as the Lord Jesus Christ. He read the Gospels with wonder at the power and love that Christ manifested. In Acts, he saw the apostles preach the gospel of salvation to all who would believe. But when he got to Romans, the Holy Spirit was dealing directly with him. As he read, he saw that there was none righteous, no, not one. That all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul had cried out, O oh, wretched man that I am, in Romans 7. Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? And that was the author's question as well. Paul's answer was, I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The author crawled out of bed, kneeled down beside it, and asked the Lord Jesus Christ to save him. It was all done in a moment. The date was January 9th, 1946. Stuart Custer would go on to write a commentary on the book of Romans. He was one of my professors, a profoundly, deeply godly man. Gracious pastor. He's now in heaven, not because of those works, not because of his reading, because one day as a child, 
he came across the book of Romans and let God speak to his soul. I was speaking to one of the ladies in our church this week who had the same testimony. She had heard much about Christ, though agnostic for a long time, but much about Christ. It was the book of Romans. Reading, as you said, chapter 5, that the lights came on. She was transformed to a new life through faith in the gospel. As we walk up the steps in this book, we'll find that we can be right with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we will enjoy the journey together. It will take us through doctrinal heights and doctrinal depths, the knowledge and glory of God. It will strengthen us and our faith as a church. It will solidify us as a body. And for some of you, and for some we have yet to meet sitting in these pews, it will be like Stuart and this lady. It will be the place where they find Jesus in the justification that comes by faith alone, through Christ alone. I'll say this, as it happens to you, as your eyes are open, I would really encourage you to mark that in your Bible. And even the day when it occurs, that your eyes are open to this truth. Your eyes are open to this truth. And let it be a, not just a journey, but a journal. May the book of Romans be a journal for your growth, spiritual growth in Christ. As day by day, week by week, we prepare and grow together through the, go the gospel delivered in Romans. You remember our overview of the Bible. We could think of the Old Testament as preparation for the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospels themselves as an introduction to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Acts, which we just finished surveying, will be a proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you remember the word we used for the epistles? What are the letters that come after Acts? From Romans all the way to Jude, we could say those are the what? Explanation. Explanation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so that's why they're so important. They are, they are so important uh, to consider uh, the, the gospel explained. And this is the chief of them. It comes first. And then Revelation will be the culmination of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But Romans comes first is no accident. Luther said this epistle is really the chief part of the New Testament. It is truly the purest gospel. It is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word by heart, but also that he should occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. We can never read it or ponder over it too much. For the more we deal with it, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. And we'll talk about his story one of these days. But it is vital for our soul. It is vital for our soul. And, and we could really take hours talking about that, but I want to get into the text. All right, so today we, we, we do, I'm just going to say this, we'll talk about different introductory ideas, helping us understand the who, the what, the when, the where, the how, and the why of Romans as we go through the weeks. But today I just want to take a brief introductory idea to uh, the theme. Romans is right with God through the gospel of Jesus Christ and then the two primary divisions. And then we'll deal with uh, verse 1 as far as we get, okay? So Romans 
right with God by climbing up the stairs? No, by God walking down the stairs. All of religious history to this point is people saying, you can be right with God by walking up these stairs, these pillars, right? These sacraments, these duties. But this is different. Romans, this letter, teaches us how to be right with God. So a primary word, and often as authors summarize it, the, the big idea is righteousness. The righteousness of God. Right? How can I be right in right standing with God? Well, that comes through this good news, believing in the good news of Jesus Christ, which is God coming down to me. So the theme kind of summarize in the weeks to come will be right with God through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. One poet tried to capture this theme of Romans in a beautifully pictured poem. Not necessarily this theme, but, but the idea, the idea of Romans. Put it this way, O oh, long and dark the stairs I trod with trembling feet to find my God. Gaining a foothold bit by bit, then slipped back and losing it never progressing, striving still with weakening grasp and faltering will, bleeding to climb to God, while he serenely smiled, unnoting me. Then came a certain time when I loosened my hold and fell thereby, down to the lowest step my fall, as if I had not climbed at all. Now when I lay despairing there, Listen, a footfall on the stair, on the same stair where I, afraid, faltered and fell and lay dismayed, and lo, when hope had ceased to be, my God. Came down the stairs to me. And this is the gospel, not that we earn our way to God or we keep our way to God, but that God has in infinite humility through Jesus come down to us. An amazing truth. And it so worked in Paul's life that it was what he was set apart for. As we go through it, uh, chapter by chapter, we'll find... Uh, two primary divisions, I would say, and we'll get into all of them as we go along. But what you'll find with Paul is that he heaps one idea on top of the other. And so, as we read verses 1 to 16, I don't know if you saw it, verses 1 through 7 are one sentence. One sentence. And so he just handles one phrase after one phrase after one phrase and you lose the beginning trail of thought if you're not careful. Because we're not disciplined in our thinking as much anymore. Uh, we like these 30-second clips and 10-second clips. A two-minute sentence? Come on! Right, that's the way he thought. And that's the way the Spirit breathed out these deep and foundational truths. Okay? And so we'll have one idea that summarizes each of the chapters, but we'll find that each one of them builds on the other as we go along. 
And we're not going to take the time to develop all of those today, but in a future introduction we will. What I do want us to find is that there's two big ideas as far as the division goes. We'll find chapters 1 through 11, there's a doctrinal foundation, right? Doctrine or foundation. And then chapters 12 to 16, we find practice or transformation, all right? And so chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, based on the mercies of God, all that you've considered so far, that's going to spur us on to do something for God. And so chapter 12, if you've read it, it's just command after command after command after command. But he's got to lay the groundwork. We've got to have our minds transformed, our hearts filled before we're ready to carry out these spirit-enabled practices. Okay? So our worship comes before our walk. Our mind has to change before our actions change. And let's just say this with parenting, with all these things, right? You, 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 the, the heart is the most important thing, right? And, and, and so in our institutions, in our society, we go about all this wrong. If we want transformation, people's hearts have to be transformed. The only hope for our society is the gospel, right? This is what it all goes down to. Jesus changes us as he changes our thinking about our lives, okay? So as we go through it, we'll find that this is all um, doctrinal, foundational, and it's very motivational, right? And there are commands in there, but chapters 1 through 11 build the foundation and the thinking from which we live our lives, and, and you don't see the undercurrent, but you do see the life transformed, okay? And so you're wanting to do 12 to 16 without 1 to 11, you've short-circuited and you're going to fall on your face, right? And so it all builds up to Romans 8, a very important chapter in the Bible, one of the most important chapters in the Bible, right? And, and so it builds up to that. And, and from there, we are able to build a foundation for sanctification, changing to be like Jesus. But we can't have transformation without that foundation, okay? So that's the main idea I want us to take as we go into verse 1, and as we go along, we'll, we'll kind of develop some more because uh, Paul does that himself in verses 1 to 7. He'll answer some of our questions as far as background goes, okay? So let's, uh, let's dive into verse 1 together. Uh, as we start unfolding this doctrinal section, this theological section, this, I would rather call it worship section, where your mind is not necessarily filled, but your heart is filled with the goodness of God, those mercies become real to you, not just to answer correctly on the test, but your heart is changed to where you want to live out the gospel. And that had transformed Paul so severely. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. By gospel of God. All right, so... Paul, right, this first word we've developed to a certain extent. Um, he's writing at the end of his third missionary journey, 56 or 57 AD, as he's bringing money, support from Macedonia back to the needy church in Jerusalem. He's needing to get back there very quickly. And, uh, and, and so he moves on, but where does he want to go? He actually wants to go to Rome and Spain. This guy's amazing. He's broken body. Totally, like you just say, there's no way this, like I'm picturing Yoda, but I know that's, is that the, the old guy on Star Wars? 
Um, I'm just picturing something bent over with age, beat up by shipwreck, and yet he's like, I've got to go to another city and preach the gospel. You look on a map where he wants to go, it's amazing. Like, he wants to go to Rome. He hasn't been there yet. But then he's, that's only halfway to where he wants to go to Spain. Right? And that's his, his end goal. He's like, I just want this to go to everywhere, the ends of the earth. Now, God steps in and puts him in prison. Right? And so his best laid plans of mice and men gang off the glee, right? So it's going to kind of go awry. It's not where he's going to end up. He's going to end up being killed by Titus for preaching the gospel. But he's wanting to take this gospel. It's so transformed him that it's just moving him. And so he uh, longs to be set apart for the gospel all the way to Rome and all the way to Spain. He begins this letter, Paul, as a normal letter. This would be the normal letter for there, like, there's all kinds of different letters, but this is a normal way of addressing. He has a, uh, the speaker who's writing and who he's addressing, those who are receiving, and then an opening greeting. But what's different here from every other letter in the uh, New Testament is he's, he spends seven verses on that opening greeting. Usually it's a, usually a grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's just a common opening greeting. Sometimes he says, I'm with Timothy. Sometimes he says, it's just by himself. But that's the normal reading. He's going to go on for seven verses. And I feel like folks are saying he's trying to solidify his position in the gospel so that he gains credibility. There's some of that there, but I think he just gets carried away with the message of the gospel. Because that's what he's set apart for. But as he begins here, verse 1, he, he really gives us three, um, three say identity crisis type truths. To help us know who we are as he identifies who he is. Maybe you are today trying to find yourself. You're saying, why am I here? Who am I? Well, really embrace these three truths. And it gives you a spiritual identity, a spiritual calling, and a spiritual mission. It's, it gives us the reason we live. Okay, uh, And so we follow this example, this helpful example uh, in, in Paul's uh, life for us today. So our first phrase here, this identity, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Verse 2 says, which he promised beforehand. So he's going to take that gospel of God and just dive right into it and spend the rest of those verses on the gospel of God. But first of all, his identity. What is Paul's identity? What should we consider as our identity? Uh, embrace your identity as a what? What does he say he is? A servant. A servant. You may translate it in your Bible, a slave. A bond slave. So what are we? We are servants. We are bond slaves. Slavery was common in Greece and Rome and that world that Paul lived in, millions of slaves. In fact, um, historians believe that up to a third or more of the population were slaves. And so what we think about as slavery is a different, um, entirely entire, uh, different beast, uh, not based on one ethnicity or nationality. 
slavery was common for every nationality in every city. And it was not just manual labor. People worked as servants for households, for a community as a teacher, as an administrator, um, as well as households. Uh, some servants in good situations would have their own private property. In some cases, it would be easier to be a slave than a free person. But for many of them, it was very degrading. And yes, you did not own yourself. You could not own your marriage. And you could not move forward in life. It was their bankruptcy. If you could not pay your bills, you sold yourself or your family into slavery. And so a person was bound to that Lord. They were owned by that person. I'll quickly note that principles of slavery were not carried into the church setting. And I think history will bear itself that, that Christianity ruined, overthrew Rome because of slavery. Uh, as Christianity has done um, in Britain and in the United States. This was demeaning. It was humbling not to be your own person. But not for Paul. Paul was a free person. He was born free. He was a Roman citizen. He had this tremendous privilege. He was wealthy at times. He said that God had given the ability to live in prosperity. It's difficult to live in prosperity and in need. And he found a way to do that through being content in Christ. So I think it's fascinating here that here Paul is a Roman citizen from a city in Rome. And, and he's writing to Rome. And what does he say? I'm a bond slave. He identifies himself as a bond slave. Human thinking would say, hey guys, listen to me, I've got my credentials. I can move among the upper echelon of your society, so uh, let me be your speaker when I come to Rome. Right? My name is respected, and I have the credentials you need to fill up the stadium. No, he's going to say, you know what? I'm a bond slave. Because what's most important is who he serves. Who do we serve? We're a bond slave of whom? Christ Jesus. We're servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. And with that, you go way above any kind of human credentials. Right? Earthly credentials, citizen of some powerful country. Maybe you're an ambassador for some powerful country. Who cares? If you are a bond slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Moses, a very gifted administrator, did some things that I don't know that anyone else has ever done in human history. He calls himself Moses, the servant of the Lord. Joshua calls himself Joshua, the servant of the Lord. And that carries right over to the New Testament with the servant of Jesus Christ. Because they're, they're seeing those two as the same person. In fact, Paul will say that Jesus Christ is, in Romans 9, verse 5, overall God blessed forever. This is Jesus. He is his Lord. He is his God. A servant sent to offer a message and dresses like a servant, speaks like a servant, gives a message to the town people, perhaps is mocked and ridiculed. 
looked down on, derided as a commoner, owns nothing of his own, dependent on another person's will, another person's financial wealth. Perhaps that servant is tempted to feel insignificant, unworthy, less than, unless that servant is a helper of the king of the land. Then when he comes into town and people look down on him, he's like, I don't care. Right? Because you guys don't know who I'm serving. You don't know who I am. I am serving the king of this whole, not just town, this whole territory. And so we too, when people look down on us for sharing the message, look down on us for not having necessarily what other people have or a position that other people have, you find your identity here. Your identity is in this. I am a bond slave of the king of kings. Put that at the top of your resume. Not really, but, but in your mind, find your identity there. On top of your resume, you know the most important thing about you is that you are servant, bond slave of the king. Our identity in the highs and lows of life, the financial highs and lows, the physical highs and lows, the health highs and lows. Our identity does not come from our circumstances where God has placed me in human history, but in the fact that I'm a bond slave of the King of Kings. Who am I? I'm a servant of the Lord. And so if you're taking notes, I'd put in there in my Bible, Romans 6, verses 17 to 23, there next to servant, because he kind of delves into that all of chapter 6, where Romans chapter 6, verse 17, Paul says, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Having been set free from sin, you've become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in a human illustration. I'm speaking on human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity, leading to lawlessness, so present your members, your faculties, your eyes, your ears, your senses to as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Verse 20, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness, but that was death. But now you've been set free from sin and become slaves to God. So you are a bond slave today, either to sin or to Christ. And Satan is a very mean master. He may not open the, the gates of that until you've come to the end of that sin, but you'll find that was not a very nice place to walk. That was harmful to my soul, and it hurts very bad. And so the Lord calls us out of that to find our calling, our identity, I'm sorry, our identity in the Lord. Don't find your identity in your social media profile. Uh, don't find your identity in your job, your family, or your culture primarily. Right? All of those things are where God has placed you in human history, and they're significant. But most importantly, our identity is in Christ as a servant of Christ. 
If you can find your identity there, then if you lose your job, if you lose your relationship, if you lose your health, if you lose everything, you still are okay because your identity comes from your God and your relationship to your God. As we find in the gospel, that's never changed. Okay? And so what a practical, practical, helpful thing that we find our identity as bond slaves of Christ. And so fleshing that out, we'll just take a moment with this, then what does that look like? What does that look like for you as an accountant or for you as a retired person or for you as a teenager just wanting to get a job and get out of your house? No, probably not, unless you're 19 or whatever. Keep moving. Find your calling. Find your calling is the second big one, okay? A bondservant of Christ Jesus called to be an apostle, called to be an apostle. So embrace your identity as a bond slave of Jesus Christ and keep that before you on your resume of your heart. But then and how that works its way out is a specific calling. Do you know your identity? You're a bond slave. Do you know your calling in life? Have you given that serious thought? What calling has God given you? This is helpful for us. Let's take a moment with this. We may have to end here. Um, our calling. Find your calling. What was Paul's calling? This is important, okay? I'm going to take a moment with this because this is abused right now. Called to be an apostle. Called to be an apostle. Find your calling. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. His apostleship was specific, was special. Paul's calling was an apostle. Now, we just had a membership meeting and we talked through the, the leadership in our church. We have we have uh, deacons and elders or pastors. We don't have apostles. Where did that go? Right, so let's take a moment with that. Why doesn't our church have apostles? Paul was an apostle. Well, this word itself has three specific types of uses in, uh, we can kind of focus on. The first is just the secular word. Apostle is messenger. Messenger. Um, this is someone who would just carry a message to someone else. They're, they're, they're a sent one. Christianity or the early church used that as an idea of, boy, this is someone sent with a specific message from a church or as an extension, a specific message from God for other churches. So they were kind of sent out as missionaries to start churches. And so we find this and you can look at all 80 or so of the occurrences of this word and did that this week to help get a, a sense of this. But it's someone who's set aside for a specific task. In this case, to share a message. Um, let me get a couple uses of that. You're taking notes. So we come across 2 Corinthians 8.23 and Titus is considered, and it's actually translated messenger, but it's the word apostle. Philippians 2.25 and then also Romans 16 verse 7. There are these sent ones that uh, help with Paul's um, ministries. Uh, come alongside. And so they're sent out. Um, but I will say thirdly that they were not this special group. There's a third special group that we want to be careful not to continue to today. Okay? 
And so there's a special use of this word in the early church to a limited group. And this is going to help you when you hear this right, in the future. So please don't tune out. This is important for us. Okay. Um, there were these folks that were called the apostles of Jesus Christ. And it was a limited body at the foundation of the church. I'm just going to give you these six big ideas that show who these people were. First of all, they were called as apostles by Jesus in his earthly ministry. In Luke chapter 6, verse 12, in these days, Jesus went out to the mountain to pray, and he prayed all night in prayer to God. And when the day came, he called his disciples, his followers, and chose 12, and he named them apostles. From the disciples, there were 12 that he named apostles. You got that? Okay. Acts chapter 1 continues that idea. It says, until the day when Jesus was taken up to heaven, this is chapter 1, verse 2, and he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. So there's these special 12 apostles that Jesus chose to go with him. We know these Peter, Matthew, right, James. Judas got fired, right? And he was replaced. So number two, the early church replaced Judas by God's choice. And so you see Acts chapter 1, verses 24, 26. They prayed and said, Lord, you know the hearts of all men. And they're just calling out to God for decision. And they choose through a lot, casting lots, Matthias. And it says there, he was added to the 11 apostles. You see this limited group? It wasn't that you just, you know, take this degree and you become an apostle and you too can tell everyone what to do and have unlimited authority. And that's the problem because that's what's going on today. Um, they were sovereignly called these apostles. And so number three... They, they were sovereignly called by Jesus from heaven, ending with Paul, right? And so this is an important verse, 1 Corinthians 15, 7 to 10. Then he appeared to James, then all the apostles, last of all, as one apostle untimely born, he appeared to me. So there's this, there needs to be an appearance from heaven of Jesus calling this person to apostolic ministry. And, and so Paul includes himself in this list of apostles he says, I am the least of the apostles, and I don't even feel fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church. But by God's grace, I am what I am. So he was, he was called an apostle by God's grace, but I labored even more abundantly than all, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Verse 8, last of all. Okay, so we find an ending of this group there. Last of all to me. Okay, so this group has ended. These few were foundational to the beginning of the church. Ephesians 2.20, having been laid, the church having been laid on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So there's this foundational ministry of these apostles. Jesus Christ, of course, the foundation himself. But he, he delegated that authority to these men. And he said, after I'm gone, I'm going to... Send the Spirit, and the Spirit's going to breathe through you. Okay, um, Those few were authoritative in breathing out Scripture. 
uh, almost all of them were the writers of your entire New Testament. John, Peter, Matthew. Peter actually spoke through Luke, right? Luke was a companion. So Luke and Peter, we would put together. And then Peter, of course, read a lot of the letters. And then this Paul, 13 books. And so we find that Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 2, God, after he spoke long ago, in many ways in these last days, kind of as a climax, he's spoken to us in his son through these, his son, this foundational ministry of these apostles. And he says, for this reason, we must pay closer attention to them. Um, God testifying with them by signs and wonders and gifts and miracles by the Holy Spirit. And so six here, those who were, I think, we're speaking the words of God, we're authenticated by miraculous supernatural works. And so 2 Corinthians 12, 12 says, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you. And so God authenticated this scripture that was being inspired by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these uh, companions of the apostles or the apostles themselves, Peter, James, John. He authenticated that through the supernatural Okay, and so this is what we're seeing. And, and this is what they would do. It wasn't that they would get a whole auditorium together of like 30,000 people and charge $50 a head and then try to collect a million dollars and then heal someone's headache from the back that came up. That's not what they would do. They would come into a village and heal everybody. That's what they would do. Not every time, but as the Lord brought the message to a new area, it's consistent in Acts. He brings the message to a new area, the revelation to a new area. There's these sign gifts. A sign is what they're called to say, this is God's working. You can't fake this. He did this with Moses. And the, the demonic magicians tried to copy it, but they could only copy it so far. Because the power of God is greater than the power of the demon world. Okay, so I just, I'd clarify that because today this is, this is, it's abused by pastors. I realize that. It's abused by all church leadership to say, to say, right, God told me to tell you to do this, right? But especially right now, apostles are, they're saying, I'm an apostle, so I have direct revelation from God. That's what people are saying. If they tell you that, run away. Well, first of all, say this, give me a chapter and verse, if God told you to tell me this, where did he tell you in his word? Because that's his word, right? He, 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 he's speaking to us through his word. And if I tell you to do something, say, Tim, where is it in scripture? I have no authority outside of scripture. Scripture is the authority of faith and practice for the church for all ages. And so an apostle, quote unquote apostle may say today, God told me to tell you this. And it often includes money. I right, was just talking to one of our families that had to deal with this, with a, a fake apostle. And, and uh, they, they very clearly said no to this apostle and continued to do what they told them not to do and said, see, you're wrong. You prophesied incorrectly. Um, but they find a way out. They're, they're liars. They're deceivers often, sometimes just misinformed, Okay. Um, but this apostolic message, what the, the beautiful thing about this is that it was given to Paul. And Paul had a special calling in his apostleship because he was an apostle to whom? The Gentiles. Okay? So his apostleship was special and that God 
gave him a message even straight from heaven that you are the apostle to the Gentiles. Your ministry is going to go to Rome. It's going to go to Caesar. It's going to continue to where sometime in the future, in the middle of Queens, in the middle of a mixture of nations, you're going to have a church of Jew and Gentile that are still preaching the gospel because of this message that's going out. Paul says he was, he was, uh, this was his apostolic calling. Oh man, we're done. But this, this idea of calling is so important. It's, it's, um, it's God's sovereignly placing Paul in this position. It was not his plan. He didn't go to seminary to make this happen, right? He was going in a very different trajectory when God called him. And when you follow this word and throughout Romans and 1 Corinthians and Galatians, you'll find this calling is special. It's God's sovereign placing on someone and not just in service, but in a relationship. What is your calling? Let me just uh, apply this and we'll have to be through for today. So what is your calling? Um, your vocation, your gifting. Uh, we are all disciples, we're bond slaves, but that looks different for an apostle. We're not all apostles. You are not an apostle to the Gentiles. That was limited to one person. So what is, what is your vocation, first of all? What ability and strength has God given you? It's not proud to say that God has given you certain strengths. Part of your identity, part of your application of that is thinking through, how can I use it for the furtherance of the gospel? Set apart for the gospel of God. My apostleship, my degree, my training, right? Whatever it is that you see as your gift should be translated to bringing forward the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so what is your, what is your gift? You say, I don't know. Let's talk about it. And I would say, put yourself in Moses' place. God gave him a mission. He had no idea what to do. And what does God say? What is that in your hand? What is it that you're doing right now? That's your vocation. That is what God in his sovereign working and orchestrating, that's where you are. So as you do that, you're living that out to the glory of God, to your best ability, uh, as, as a parent, as a worker, as a retired person, as a four-year-old child. Like, how can I do this, live in all my relationships in such a way that my gifts are being sharpened, are used for God? But as you get to know yourself, and this took me 40 years, I think, wow, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm a little better at that than that. And I'm really not good at that. Right, so you, you think this way. God's designed us all differently. Lord, what are my strengths? And I would just open this really quickly. Uh, and we'll be done. But to your spiritual aptitude. Okay? And, and I really wanted to give 10 minutes to this. And maybe we'll another time or we'll do a session on this. But we're given spiritual gifts. Paul's gift was that of an apostle. That's not our gift. But he's given you gifts, right? And so this church is not a spectator sport, right? And so we got to think carefully, Lord, how can I serve? And, and as you look at the different gifts in Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians, it's, uh, they're, they're either ser they're often service gifts or, or, or speech gifts, but they're very diverse. 
And so I just encourage you to think, Lord, what gifts have you given me to exercise at this church in my community by your grace for your glory? And one of them is leadership. A lot of you are really good leaders, administrators. You're really able to connect with people with zeal and, and encourage them to continue on. We need to use that. We need a clean the church ministry team, right? That's not in 1 Corinthians 12. But, you know, if you're very detail-oriented and you don't like being seen or noticed in what you do, and a lot of you are like that, boy, that's a great fit. Right? Talk to Pastor Andrew. We don't need someone just to do that. We also need someone to lead that, a leader, right, to help administrate that and organize that, okay? And so... So consider your spiritual calling. God has set you apart, not just with a vocation, but also a spiritual vocation. And, and I'm just seeing more and more as I get older that the need to connect our folks here in our church family with the things that they're good at. And it may be that you try four different things and you're like, Tim, that's still, I just, ugh. that's okay. Let's find it. Let's find it together. That's part of my job as a pastor to help with that, to encourage that, to Build that up and encourage you in it, okay? But all of us using all of our gifts, our vocation, as a means for the end of being set apart to the gospel. And we'll finish that next week. Walter Wilson was a medical doctor, businessman, um, but he saw all of that as an opportunity to share Jesus everywhere he went. He wrote a book about it. It's really cool. Filled with stories of how God used him. Uh, he mentions sitting on a subway, saw someone reading the New York Times. He's talking about a company. It's a religious organization that tried to organize large-scale evangelistic meetings. And so he's kind of looking along with the person, and um, he starts chatting with them. Kind of goes to where the lady is working, and... Says she's 26 year old, quite pleasant. Um, he was greatly interested, and he said, "Why do you think someone would spend millions of dollars to help save people?" It kind of reminds me of Noah. Uh, they have all of these things, and so he just kind of asked, "Do you think they hired out people to build the ark?" And he's doing that to use this conversation to get to spiritual things. I don't know that I would use that bridge, but uh, but God used it. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't know that Noah had any carpenters, she said. He said, well, he probably did. Maybe he did that in order to save those millions of lost souls scattered throughout the world in the ark. And then he says, have you been saved yourself? Why? I'm not sure I've ever been saved. I've never heard anyone say such a thing, being saved. To be saved is to know the Lord Jesus has put away your sins as work at the Calvary. Has that happened to you? I've never heard of that before. Do you go to church? I'm a Sunday school teacher. Never heard of that before. Romans 10, he read. They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. And he explained, you see from this scripture, there are two kinds of righteousness. One kind is God's righteousness the other is your righteousness. You've been striving to make yourself righteous by being good, doing good. 
and then he had to leave. He came back the next Wednesday and found that she said, since our conversation, I had no comfort. I could not escape the thought that I had not been saved. He turned to John 5.24 and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment is passed from death into life. Christ is God's ark of safety for the sinner today. You can enter into him by faith and be saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And she believed and was saved. Here is a good example of a vocation used, set apart for the gospel of God. Heads bowed and eyes closed. Let's take a moment here. Ask the Lord, Lord, what's my vocation? What way can I use my vocation to your